0: Welcome to Georgia in Play. Nice to have you here today. I'm Leah Fleming. This week, people from all around the world joined Georgians in saying goodbye to a queen. Rosalind Carter, who passed away on November 19th, was celebrated in such beautiful ways. Memorial services have now wrapped up, but one word is left lingering behind, love. Both Rosalind and President Jimmy Carter's capacity to love is seen through all of their life's work. That love extends to a woman named Mary Prince. Here to tell that story is Kate Anderson Brower. Kate is a best-selling author who interviewed Mrs. Carter and Mary Prince. Hi, Kate. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Now, you told this story in your book, The Residence Inside the Private World of the White House. What did uh, Mrs. Carter tell you
1: about Mary Prince? Well, uh, she talked about... um how Mary Prince was unfairly convicted as a Black woman in 1970 of murder. And um, I actually just listened to this interview again with with Rosalind Carter, where she said it was absolutely not true. Um, Mary did not kill anyone. She was at this restaurant around the same time. Um, So she absolutely believed that Mary was given... Uh, inadequate representation because she was Black. And um, this is in the Deep South. You know, this is in Georgia at, in 1970. She, Mary told me she only met with her lawyer very briefly. Um, and what it was completely kind of took her by surprise, actually, that she was convicted. And um, I think it was really shocking for her. And so it, it really says a lot about the Carters because, I think what Mrs. Carter's sort of life ethos was, was something that one of the eulogists said yesterday, which was to give voice to the powerless and persuade the powerful to listen. And I think with Mary, she really she she was determined to uh, have Mary work in the governor's mansion and then in the White House as Amy's nanny because she loved her. Mm. That's
0: some kind of love, you know, to to have yeah. this woman who uh, was wrongfully convicted, but was still convicted, and they didn't shy away from her. Uh, they
1: brought her into care for their daughter, their child. Yeah, in yes. the inner sanctum of their lives, right? And, um, I mean, Mary, I interviewed Mary too, and she does not do many interviews, mm-hmm. and she was just uh, really um, dedicated to the Carters. She's like a member of their family. And she told me one of her happiest memories in the White House was swimming in the pool with Rosalind Carter. Um, But she and Amy just really clicked. I think that was a big part of it too. They just had so much fun together. And Rosalind's like a working mother, you know? She needed somebody she could trust who got along with her daughter. And her daughter was kind of quirky, you know? Amy was... It's it's kind of a shy, introverted person. And Mary could kind of bring out the joy in her life.
0: Mm. So, Mrs. Carter, she was really one of the first high profile people to start talking about mental
1: health and and mental illness. Why did she do that? Well, one specific incident happened in um, the 1960s when she was campaigning for Jimmy uh, when his first campaign for governor she was dutifully outside a factory at 4.30 in the morning. And a woman came out and um, Rosalind said, gosh, you must be so tired. I hope you can go home and get some rest. And the woman said, actually, I've got to go home and take care of my daughter who has mental health challenges. And there had been an expose of a Georgia hospital that showed a lot of um poor treatment of people in the hospital and so rosalind was hearing again and again on the campaign trail we need to do something about this problem and so she rosalind who was just tireless then went to her husband's rally that night and stood in line and waited to shake his hand and when he saw her he was kind of shocked and she said, I'm I'm here to let you know that one of the concerns of your voters is that mental health be addressed. And he said to her as he shook her hand, I'm going to have the best mental health commission in the country or in the state. And you're going to be in charge of it. And so that says a lot about their relationship, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, she um, she admired Eleanor Roosevelt, another uh, very famous first lady what was it about Eleanor Roosevelt you think that attracted her so much to her
1: I think it was that Eleanor um really made it a job she made being first lady a, a something she took on as her profession and that's what Rosalind did she um you know we know that she went into the East Wing office she made it uh, so that her staff was paid the same as the West Wing staff uh she would go and demand weekly lunches with her husband which i think is great where she wanted to bring him the problems of of the world kind of at his feet to say here i'm traveling around the country this is what people are telling me they care about you're here isolated in this this fishbowl of the white house and um so she was his conduit to the american people mm. So, you know, if you did not watch the service
0: on Tuesday, you can find it online and you can watch. I want to point out Amy, the Carter's uh, daughter. Mm -hmm. She read one of her father's love letters uh, that he had written uh, 76 years ago to Rosalind. And I just needed several Kleenex as she was doing this.
2: My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their partnership and love story was a defining feature of her life. Because he isn't able to speak to you today, I am going to share some of his words about loving and missing her. This is from a letter he wrote 75 years ago while he was serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling, until tomorrow. Jimmy.
0: And I think the thing that makes so many people weep when we think about the Carters is that pure love, that 77 years of marriage. What was the secret to their
1: their love story, do you think? I think that they both went on this great adventure together, you know, um, and Chip said that yesterday in the in the um, at the funeral, you know, that that they let each other evolve too, you know, they both took on different projects. They both had different interests. And then they met together with the Carter Center when they were taking on, you know, election monitoring and Guinea worm and all of those things. I think that bound them in their love for each other and their bond. And they would read the Bible every night together in Spanish. <laughs> they never went to bed angry, according to Jimmy Carter. I think Rosalind was a lot Tougher and more honest. Um, I remember when I went down to interview them in Plains and I, in two thousand and eighteen, and I asked them about Donald Trump, about what they thought of his presidency. And she, it was very funny because he gave this kind of very thoughtful answer and said, "You know, well Ronald Reagan wasn't a great president either, and he lied." And 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 Rosalind kind of just you know elbowed him and said, "Jimmy, this is totally different <laughs> than Ronald Reagan." <laughs> And I just love that, because she just said what was on her mind. And I think they complimented each other that that way, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. yeah
1: <laughs> I you know, <laughs> she
0: she was such a a quiet woman, and she was just like a a classic lady. So uh, for me, it's it's interesting to just see her have that that real moment, you know, with her husband. And you got to see a lot of that up close. What are some of your memories and your impressions that you're going to just keep with you forever as you as you go forward?
1: I think it's their uh, their real uh, humbleness. And, you know, Judy Woodruff said this at the funeral, like their groundedness, that I don't think there are other presidential couples just because of the nature of how the presidency has changed and how the world has changed, who are that grounded and who they are and, you know, in their values. And um, I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that they did not, they they didn't see the post-presidency as a way to make money. They saw it as a way to change lives, not to say that others, you know, don't as well, but I think that the amount of money that people are making now is something Like we've never seen before and both, both parties. And so, I mean, the, the Carters, as you probably know, slept on a Murphy bed in their Atlanta office at the Carter center. Like they didn't even, they could have paid for a hotel. Mm -hmm. Their office costs the least of any presidential office to keep up. They didn't want taxpayers to pay a lot of money for, you know, extra staff. And, I just think that that's kind of amazing. But I think that the Mary Prince story to me says so much. And then um, I was also very taken by the fact that Rosalind got a little emotional when I asked her what her biggest accomplishment was. And she said it was nearly eradicating guinea worm, which is this terrible disease. And there used to be many, many cases. Now there are, I think, less than 10. And it's because of their work, which is they really cared about about helping people and it wasn't all just kind of you know lip service
0: right right they did the work they really did yeah yeah well, Kate Anderson Brower you are the author of several books including First Women and thank you so much for sharing all of your your experience with the Carters with us we appreciate you thank you so much I love talking to you Here's a moment from the service. Pianist David Osborne plays Wind Beneath My Wings. to Georgia in play. I'm Leah Fleming. The special session is going on in Georgia right now to decide on new voting districts. A federal judge named Steve Jones said that the current maps quote, dilute black voting power. Jones found that five of Georgia's 14 congressional districts violated the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He also found that 10 of Georgia's 56 state Senate districts and 11 of its 180 state House districts also violate the law. This is not the first time a southern state like Georgia has dealt with violations that disenfranchise black voters. According to people who study law and voting rights groups, these latest problems stem from the U.S. Supreme Court's 2013 decision to strike down key parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Alicia Hughes is a visiting assistant professor of practice at Emory University School of Law and she is the interim executive director of the Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. Alicia, you have um, said that the Supreme Court's elimination of preclearance in Shelby v. Holder was a mistake, and that uh, was premised on faulty logic. What was the preclearance all about, the faulty logic that you're talking about? Well, when you start, when you consider
3: historically what has taken place in the country, That caused us to have to have preclearance. What preclearance does is it essentially says when a jurisdiction that has historically had a problem with Mm -hmm. systemic and institutionalized racism and oppression that causes folks to not be able to vote and one man, one vote not to count, we need to take special care to make sure that when state legislatures are enacting or local bodies are enacting. New measures um, regarding elections, be it it deals with polling locations, be it it deals with the time of elections, be it it deals with the dates of elections, be it deals with, you know, how districts are carved out and created, before any change takes place pursuant to the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that you would have to get preclearance from the U.S. Department of Justice to ensure essentially, that these changes would not violate the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You know, so that's what was in place. And unsurprisingly, the states that had issues with voting, where there have been consent decrees in place and where the pre-clearance is a requirement um, dating back to 1950s, 1960s, There are Southern states where we're getting a bevy of changes right now that have come forward after the 2013 um, case of Shelby County versus Holder, as in Eric Holder, attorney general of the the U.S. Department of Justice then at the time. And then there is another decision on top of this. Um, In 2018, the Brinovich versus the DNC decision that essentially further chiseled away. So those two decisions in and of themselves essentially gutted the key provisions, sections two, four, and five of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So now without preclearance measures and, and, and having the alito factors to be considered before we can even overturn decisions made by these legislative bodies at the state and local level, you know, the Supreme Court has got new tests in place now, right? So we're stuck with the law from 2000 based on what they've done in 2013 in Shelby County, 2018, Brinovich versus DNC with these Alito factors. So now what you've gotten is, unsurprisingly, hundreds of bills were filed across the country after these decisions. And these hundreds of bills, you know, resulted in an awful lot of laws that are extraordinarily restrictive or more restrictive, we believe, and make it more difficult for folks to vote and elect candidates of their choice, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got that going on with the court cases. But then when it comes down to how the districts are drawn, gerrymandering at its finest is something that we're having to contend with. You know, in the Milligan decision, which is a recent decision um, involving Alabama's um, state legislature and redrawing their lines, they've made some decisions that were found to be unconstitutional and a violation of the Voting Rights Act. So now what we're doing is having to look at things piecemeal because the Justice Department doesn't have preclearance that it can go to where things have to come through it first, get the stamp of approval from the federal government, and then be enacted since that no longer exists. When things are going on in these states, you know, you look at North Carolina, South Carolina, Mm -hmm. you look at Louisiana, you look at Alabama, Mm -hmm. you look at Georgia. These states were all subject to the preclearance requirements um, under the Voting Rights Act of 65. So now these legislative You know, legislatures, state legislatures, mostly conservative, have come out with laws that are creating problems. Separate and aside from the laws that are creating problems, you know, Senator Warnock had to sue Mm -hmm. in order to get polling locations open. Um, that, That had to go in front of his election for the United States Senate in large measure because people were able to make changes in how folks voted based on the Brinovich and the Shelby County View Holder decisions. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, when you look at what's going on, we're looking at things one state, one case, one issue at a time. And I'm proud of the Supreme Court for doing things that say when the numbers have changed so substantially with the census, we need to pay attention and make sure that folks are able to vote for folks, you know, candidates of their choice.
0: Yeah. So does the fact that a judge in Georgia ruled against uh, Georgia, does that say something positive about whatever is left of the Voting Rights Act to protect Black voters? The judge ruled that the lines do indeed need to be redrawn in Georgia because they violate the Voting Rights Act. So does that does that say something positive or not? Not so much. The answer is yes.
3: Um, I know that our federal judges, you've got the district court level, the appellate level and the Supreme Court, you know, highest court of the land. It says something positive, even in the Alabama case that the United States Supreme Court in the Milligan decision said that Alabama had to redraw its lines because of gerrymandering and that you should have two majority black districts when 27%, you know, fortunately science is coming into play now. And, you know, jurists are supposed to be impartial in applying the rule of law and looking at it and making determinations. So while I do have some concerns that we got things wrong in Shelby County v. Holder and Brinovich v.ersus DNC, the United States Supreme Court, even with its conservatives tilt, is sending a message loud and clear. They're signaling to these southern states that we're not going to let you disenfranchise voters when there is evidence stating that we should, you know, that there's evidence that they're empirical data, essentially, mm-hmm. that we should be able to have greater representation than we have. So I'm very encouraged. Um, and I think that the district court judge, Judge Jones, here in Georgia, mm-hmm definitely looked at the fact that over 10 years, the census data from 2010 to 2020, you had um, 484,000 additional voters, brown voters in the metropolitan Atlanta area. It cannot be that the way that the lines are drawn at the same time that the population of white folks in the same area has diminished. Mm -hmm. It cannot be (laughs) that when you've got numbers that are that strong, it doesn't shift because the demographic shifts. The representation doesn't shift with that demographic. We know that 91% of Black folks are voting for Democrats. Mm -hmm. And when you've drawn your lines or redrawn the lines, and in this parochial exercise, it does not reflect this growth of the area and what the demographic shift is like. And it doesn't create opportunities for brown people to elect representation of their choice. The fact that a judge would say, we're not going to stand for this means an awful lot. You want to take it a step further with hope. The fact that although I would expect because of the conservative wing of the Republican Party in Georgia, that decision would be Mm appealed and it has been appealed. It has. But I think we have hope because a Republican governor called a special session, gave a directive that folks redraw the maps And they think that they're paying attention to the fact that there had to be a special master when the Alabama legislature chose to not comply with the Supreme Court determination. So Georgia doesn't want to be in a position. Our hand has been slapped, you know, spanked here now. We don't want to be in a position where a special master is drawing lines and it takes it completely out of the control of the legislature. So I am encouraged. I think that a clear message or signal has been sent that the courts are paying attention and when the case can be made to do the right thing based on the data that's there. The numbers don't lie with the population and the shifts in the demographics, Mm. that the courts have it in their minds to do the right thing. And it's important that we're going to do the right thing, even though we're having to do the right thing on a case-by-case basis because we did the wrong thing. While Judge Jones ruled that five of Georgia's congressional district maps violate the Voting Rights Act, the action during the upcoming special session is expected to focus on McCormick's 6th district or the 11th congressional district centered in Cobb and Cherokee counties. We've got a problem there, Mm -hmm. but separate and aside from that, we also have a situation where the map that is contemplated doesn't go all the way in terms of everything that should be done. But when you look at the fact that there is a possibility that what is drawn right now Mm -hmm. and proposed and presented does not fully comply with the court order, that opens its way up to another appeal. And I think that we need to be conscientious about that as we're going forward and paying attention. We're already on appeal. Um, The state, has already appealed his decision. However, they did not seek a stay of the order saying redraw the lines. I think it's very important that voters understand that we're far from finished with this process. It's going to get appealed to the 11th Circuit or is appealed to the 11th Circuit and one side you have to assume will be dissatisfied with the 11th Circuit's decision and this is going to go all the way up to the Supreme
1: Court.
0: All right, Georgia lawmakers, they have until December 8th to approve maps that do comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act. Alicia Hughes, you are a visiting assistant professor of uh, practice at Emory University School of Law, and you're also the um, interim executive director of the Center for Civil Rights and Social Justice. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. We appreciate you. Delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. There is a cultural phenomenon known as cuffing season. Cuffing refers to the cold time of the year when people decide to trade in their single status in exchange for a relationship to keep them nice and warm until the spring. We're gonna talk about that coming up on Georgia in Play. you are listening to Georgia in Play I'm Leah Fleming it is officially cuffing season you know it's that time of year when single people actively search for a boo thang or someone to date and spend the cold long winter with it is such a well-known season that there are songs all about cuffing season including uh, this one by SZA and it features Doja Cat it's called Big Boy here's a piece of it Well, that's a piece of that song. Finding the one to get cuffed up with is so hard for so many people. And maybe you're not even looking to just get cuffed up for the cold winter. Maybe you're actually looking for a relationship. And maybe you are in the Amen Choir on that when I say it is so hard. Well, here to bring some help right now is Pastor Cal. He is on Lifetime TV's reality show, Married at First Sight. And here he is in action. I want you to hear some of him. He's working with Chris, who got married to somebody at first sight, and he's having a bit of trouble in the relationship.
4: You wanted somebody to be a power couple. You wanted someone where you guys walk into a room and you could work a room. Yeah, but you, you have to be attracted to the person, though. In every other area, she was qualified. It's just that you didn't like her face. Yes, sir. Oh man. Okay. Yeah, man. I, I, I look, Chris. Attraction has to be more than physical. If you're truly looking for a marriage, then you need to be focused on shared values, and you have to let attraction grow. That's what I did, though. Dude, you did not. <laughs> I did. No, you did not.
0: <laughs> All right. That is a piece of married at first sight with Pastor Cal in action working with Chris. I'm just saying I kind of get it, Chris. So Pastor Cal is also the author of Marriage Ain't for Punks. And yes, Calvin Roberson is indeed a pastor. He and his wife, Wendy, are the leaders of Progression Church in Atlanta. So lots of people are, you know, still doing this um, swipe left and right thing on, on dating apps. But there are a lot of people that say that these, you know, dating, they have dating app fatigue. They are just tired of the getting to know you conversations that are so meaningless and they have to keep going through that. And these people don't look like what they thought they, their dream person would look like. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that we are getting wrong about that with dating apps? Oh.
4: Oh my gosh. Well, you know what? Dating apps has, has, look, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of technology, but I think that where dating apps have gone wrong Mm. is that they've made people feel, I think people have become disposable Mm. and some research that, um, that I've been doing, um, you know, in researching dating apps, because actually I'm, 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 we, we're in the process of launching our own, but it's not a dating app. It's a matchmaking service. But, um, what I found is that people have become very disposable, and we look at people as disposable. Here's an interesting fact: in most of your most of your um, uh, larger dating apps, I won't mention any names, but the majority of them are men. Like roughly about seventy or so percent are more male than female, and that's because I think a lot of the guys go on there for hookups. They're not they, they're not really looking at it yet as a place to to find authentic and real relationships. They're looking at it hey, you know what? I'm lonely tonight or I need, you know, let me just, uh, Mm -hmm. a a booty call or whatever, (laughs) you know? So they go in there, they look for people, they swipe left, they swipe right. Mm -hmm. But imagine, you know, just how disposable it makes someone to feel or or it makes someone, if I can look at your picture and swipe left or swipe right, you can't do that when you're just meeting someone face-to-face or when it's a more controlled environment it's it's just made people feel as though hey you know what i can i don't have to be serious i don't have to i don't have to uh look at the gravity of what i'm doing
5: mm.
0: so you're starting this matchmaking uh, service that you're going to have and how will you um work that i know it's not going to work like the show marriage at first sight it can't is it going to do that <laughs> where you literally meet
4: someone oh god no oh okay. uh, no <laughs> 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 no it's aptly named, though, Marriage Ain't for Punks. And here's the thing that we're going to do that's different. First of all, it's not only a—it's it's a marriage resource. It's a one-app, two-application. And I think it's going to be the primary resource for all things married and all things pre-marriage in both communities. But what we're doing on the dating side, since that's what we're talking about— is that we're, you are going to have to fill out a questionnaire. We are going to have to learn information about you. So you can't just sign up. And that questionnaire, which would be about I mean, 130, 140 questions, we're going to find a match that's fit for you. No, you don't get a chance to swipe left and right. You're going to find the one person that's right for you. And then we're going to show you that one person. We're only going to match with one person at a time. And here's the kick. You're not even going to see their face. You're only going to see an avatar that you've created. Oh my!
5: Goodness. And only
4: by mutual consent do you remove that avatar. Because the idea here is that we want people to to grow in love with the person before we just before you just see them physically and 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 discount them because they might be too tall or they might be too short. They may have a a mole on their nose or something ridiculous. <laughs> Trust me, I've seen so many situations where people have discounted people because of some crazy deal breaker they've had, and they've missed out on something that could be incredibly great for them.
0: Uh, but shouldn't you be physically attracted to the person? I mean, you don't want to m- meet somebody. I mean, I look, I'll use myself. <laughs> I have met some people. And I'm like, I could have met that fool at the grocery store I, for free instead of oh spending my all God. my time on an app. He's <laughs> short and, you know, what in the world? So <laughs> help
4: me. Look, help me. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for your honesty you' absolutely. Look, I'm not saying the physical attraction is not important but I think that a lot of times when we have people you know who are focused and and they 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 become myopic and just completely laser focused on the physical you do miss out on a lot. Think about it once you are married, let's say you do find the love of your life and you're you're attracted to them and everybody's all attracted and you're just proud to be seen in public with this person 10 20 30 40 years down the road you're not going to look the same. There has to be something more, something beneath the facade as they say, your beauty's only skin deep. Your looks are only the resume. that's the that just gets you in in the front door. Uh, after the resume, you got to come with something serious.
0: Uh, I see in your book, you know you talk about what makes a good relationship and you say that it a good relationship really is about refusing to allow pettiness to destroy the loving connection that you and your partner yeah. seek to find with each other. What do you mean by that? Oh my
4: God. You know, I I think that we forget the value of what we have. And when I use the word pettiness, I'm talking about, you know, these little annoyances, these little things that are only a problem because of deeper feelings or deeper issues we might have with a person. For instance, my wife, I'm sure there are things about me, I I can't imagine any, but I'm sure there are things about me that annoy her. But because she loves my dirty underwear, <laughs> and I love hers as well, <laughs> these little annoyances can be overlooked. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we we major in minors, that minor things that should we should be able to deal with just, just flippantly, just, okay, fine, that's no big deal. We make it a major because we don't appreciate the value we've seen mm-hmm. in a person.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: I think then, so that's what we're going with, with that.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Pastor Cal, your book yeah. is called Marriage Ain't For Punks. I like that. And, yes, Lord. Yep. It, it and, ain't. <laughs> and you are on the lifetime TV show Marriage at First Sight. Thank you so much for spending some time with us.
4: Yeah, it's been my pleasure. My pleasure, Married at First Sight. And look, I'm going to tell you, you can find out more about the app at Married. Uh, MarriageAintForPunks.com <laughs> MarriageAintForPunks.com okay. But uh, thank you so much, I appreciate it It's always a pleasure
0: Thank you Pastor Cal was saying it's hard to find a relationship that is deeper on an app. But the founder of a new app says theirs is working. Here's the thing. Cuffing season may make you feel like you don't even want to be bothered. Dating apps have been around for 10 years or so. There's Bumble, Tinder, Hinge. And if you've been on any of these apps, you just may be plain tired of it. The swiping, the getting to know you conversations, and in the end, no relationship. Well, let's talk more about that with guess who? A co-founder of a new dating app. I know that sounds funny. Mitch Alterman is co-founder of Hatched. Hey, Mitch.
6: Hey, Leah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure. So why should we give you a shot at convincing us that we need to stay in the dating app world and that a decent relationship can be found?
6: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, dating apps and this is coming from a from a dating app founder obviously. They've kind of turned into a necessary evil in our in our lives. 40% of American couples meet on dating apps today. This number is expected to balloon to, to to 70% by 2040. And so, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, dating apps are going nowhere um and they're really becoming the predominant way for people to meet. And so um, I just figured, uh, you know, there had to be a new way to meet someone that's not predicated on, you know, physical appearance or superficiality, but has a better, more meaningful way to actually uh, uh, present yourself on dating apps. And so, uh, yeah, dating apps really aren't going anywhere for better or for worse. And so really my whole goal with Hatch was just to build a concept that can help people get matches um, and show some of their best attributes.
0: Uh, So your app is more personality based. Talk more about that.
6: Yeah, exactly. So fundamentally, Hatched is totally different than anything out there. So pictures are covered. The way the app functions is that sign up. So you'll choose a photo like you would any other dating app to to cover your profile, and then you would choose an egg avatar from a library of about 40, 50 cute little designs that, in some way, shape, or form, represent like a an interest or hobby. So I might choose like the golf egg or the you know uh, you know weightlifting egg, or I don't know. And then um, I would dive into the experience of the act, of the app, which is I'd get paired with other matches. But instead of seeing their photo and bio information like you would see on like a Tinder or a Bumble, and then you would swipe right and hope they swipe right, and if they do, that constitutes a match. For us, uh, you would just see their egg avatar and some bio information. If you like what you see, uh, you'd click to get a person at what we call a personality, core value, attitude, or lifestyle question. So we have a database of about 500 of them. One will get put at random. uh, We'll get presented to both you and your match if you both answer the same uh 25% of uh, uh your egg avatars will hatch and you'll see the bottom 25% of each other's photos so oh, yeah, at this point users are pretty engaged yeah it's, it's <laughs> different yeah it's totally different um and you would answer another question to get to 50% and 75% and then 100% so once you could see your full match you you know that you have four traits in common uh you could be- begin a meaningful conversation so really just changing the the criteria of of how to achieve matches from uh, you know physical appearance photographing well to let you know we have four personality traits in common. Let's take a chance and see where this goes.
0: Ah, uh, what are some of the sample questions?
6: Yeah. So, um, they could be anything from like hypotheticals. So mm-hmm. would you prefer to have a big wedding, like a large wedding, if in a perfect world, would you rather have a large wedding in a big ballroom or like a small intimate wedding? Right. Um, our thesis right now relies on similarities. Just, there's plenty of, uh, of data that suggests that like opposites actually don't attract and that most like successful couples are similar to one another. Mm-hmm. And so, we took that thesis and baked that into these questions. And uh, really, so so the ability to hatch is going to be predicated on answering the question similarly. Um, and it, you know, it, it, you're also meeting a stranger on dating apps. That's what dating apps are. They're introductions to, to strangers. And we feel like, you know, having similarities is a lot more powerful to connecting with a stranger than differences. But back to your original question, you know, it could be are you more extroverted, are you more introverted? Uh, are, do you like, uh, you know, some, uh, a long, a long drive home from work, you have a 40 minute drive home from work. Would you rather listen to a podcast or audiobook, or would you call our FaceTime friends? Just <laughs> fun, engaging questions that in some way, tell us a little bit about your personality.
0: Oh yeah. I love that. So what happened to people just meeting out at the club or the bar or, you know,
6: at church? <laughs> it's, it's, to, it's, it's so true. I'm so, so I actually met my wife on a dating map seven years ago. And dating apps were so taboo at the time that we were ashamed to tell people we met on a dating app. And that so we would actually lie and say we met at a bar. Now it's totally upended and flip-flopped to the point where if you meet someone in real life, you have to kind of say, believe it or not, we didn't meet on a dating app. <laughs> so it's it's really taboo, and, and it, it sounds um, a little bit of a, of a contradiction, but uh, I hear a lot of time from users, like meeting someone in a bar, like they don't feel safe, you know, on a dating app at least you could potentially vet this person out. You can look them up online, share with your friends where you're going, whatever. Uh, but if you meet someone in person, um, your first instincts to kind of be like resist it. If someone comes up to you you say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if I feel safe. And then you, you really can't vet that person out right then and there. And so you have no idea who you're, um, you know who or what you're getting yourself through. right so it's kind of a weird dichotomy but you know dating apps in a way help people feel a little safer
0: alright well Mitch you are co-founder of Hatched and this has been fun thank you so much for sharing with us
6: yeah thanks so much for having me Leah I really appreciate it
0: John Lemley host of GPB's classical music show City Cafe joins me next to talk classical songs for your playlist as you get your holiday celebration on that's ahead on Georgia and Play This is Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Do you recognize this? is one of Georgia's daughters. Augusta, Georgia gets to claim the late Jesse Norman as their own. That is her singing This tide, known as Jesse's Carol. This is one of John Lemley's faves for the holidays. John is GPB's City Cafe host. John is here now. So, hey, John, what is it about this song that does it for you in your mind?
5: Well, thanks, first of all, for having me. But Really, it's Jesse's voice. It is just, it envelops you like a warm hug. Even when she was on the opera stage uh, in a serious role, it, she just made you feel so good. But this song that Donald Fraser wrote for Jesse Norman, in fact, uh, it's called This Christmas Tide, subtitled Jesse's Carol. He wrote that just for her. And there's something about the words, the music. It pulls everything that we love about the holiday season, about Christmas, all into one neat little package. And, uh, you know, the, it opens with green and silver, red and gold, all of our favorite holiday uh, colors there, and uh, just leaves you feeling so good, so happy, so warm and cozy. <laughs>
0: warm and cozy. Yeah. So I asked you, what are the classical music songs that we absolutely need on our playlist for the holidays? And you came with a list. The first one from the Sacred Realm, Silent Night and O Holy Night. Those are uh, two of the songs. What is it about um, Silent Night and then O Holy Night?
5: Well, first of all, they both have an evening theme in common. And that's what we think of when we think of the the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ, is that it all took place uh, under the starlit skies with the angels above uh, announcing to the shepherds this birth and it's both of them. uh, Well, especially Silent Night is a more intimate piece of music. It was actually written Uh, It was actually written uh, because at the church where it premiered, the organ had broken down. And so the uh, music director there at the church grabbed his guitar and uh, essentially, on the spur of the moment, created this song, which is now a classic. And then, Oh, Holy Night. I mean, it, it just doesn't get better than that. And for Atlantans, It has a a special connection because way back when Rich's department store, downtown Atlanta, used to have this over-the-top lighting of their Christmas tree. And they had choirs from all over Georgia performing. And at the very end of the entire concert was O Holy Night. And as the soprano sang that high note at the end all of the lights came on, the tree was illuminated, and Christmas began, it was always on Thanksgiving night, began for everyone in the state, uh, thanks to that piece of music and the, the riches tradition as well. Mm.
0: Mm. I can see that in my mind. Beautiful. So hands down, when it comes to orchestral favorites with a secular theme, you say Leroy Anderson Sleigh Ride. Say more about that.
5: Well, it was written uh, shortly after the Second World War. Leroy Anderson uh, actually completed it in February of 1948. And for radio, it was perfect because it was exactly three minutes long. That was the sweet spot at the time for the length of a piece of music to be played on the radio. It was first performed again, not at Christmas, but in May of 1948 as an extra by the Boston Pops with Arthur Fiedler conducting. Now, lyrics were added by a man named Mitchell Paris in 1950, but we don't hear those very often. Sleigh Ride, uh, the recording that we know today, was first recorded in stereo in May of 1959. And sort of like that iconic recording of Bing Crosby singing White Christmas, It has this warm, uh, cozy—there's that word again, cozy—this warm sound that envelops you and is the recording that I'd say at least eight times out of ten is the one we we hear most of the time, whether at home or on the radio. And because of that, people expect it at just about any holiday, Christmas, winter concert, no matter where they are in the world, even if they never see a a flake of snow.
0: Yeah, yeah. So these songs and more, they're all going to be played across Georgia with orchestras performing them. What are a few of the concerts that are happening across the state? Uh, I know you've got a full list on your Facebook page, but just what are a few that that uh, come to mind?
5: well we'll head south first uh down to albany uh or as natives uh refer to it albany <laughs> uh the albany symphony orchestra uh they're going to be ushering in the holiday season uh with a timeless favorite uh down in especially this corner of southwest georgia it's the 32nd annual peppermint pops doesn't that sound delicious <laughs> And in celebration of the orchestra's 60th anniversary this year, the orchestra is gifting the community, the entire state, anyone who wants to attend with free admission and you can't beat free. And that is coming up uh, on the evening of Tuesday, December 5th in the Albany Municipal Auditorium. You also have an opportunity uh, in the Piedmont region of the state to head to Athens, uh, home of the University of Georgia. The Athens Symphony uh, is going to be performing Sleigh Ride, uh, but also uh, some sacred favorites, including Handel's Hallelujah. Uh, This year's concert also includes music from Alan Silvestri's score for the Polar Express, and that is a Saturday concert December 9th in the Classic Center in downtown Athens good reason to head to the coast for a little holiday cheer. The Coastal Symphony of Georgia is kicking off the holiday season with a special concert of festive favorites. Uh, The performance will feature the symphony's Woodwinds Quintet in a program that blends yuletide favorites and a few seasonal surprises, they promise. The music uh, gets underway at 5 p.m. on Friday, December 14th at Vitality Living Frederica on St. Simon's Island.
0: Okay, okay. So, you know, when it comes to favorites, uh, you gave me also a list of what your family likes to hear. Let's start with your husband, Mike, his favorite.
5: He didn't uh, waste a moment in (laughs) responding. He said, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know him. His favorite recording of it is uh, the... King's College Choir from, from England, oh. he says, it just means Christmas has arrived <laughs> in all its glory and fanfare. Oh, that sounds beautiful. Okay. And your niece, Beth. Yeah, my niece, Beth, has been telling me actually for a number of years now, and she she only thinks about it when it comes on the radio or it's on some music mix I'm playing, She loves Carol of the Bells. That's the old Ukrainian Christmas uh, song. Uh, Sometimes it's known as Christmas Chimes or by some other title. But uh, for Beth, that's Christmas.
0: Okay. John Lemley, you are host of City Cafe. It airs on GPB's Classical Stream on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at 1. The show is also now airing on uh, GPB Radio on Sunday nights at 9 p.m.?
5: That's correct. Uh, North to south and east to west.
0: (laughs) All all corners are covered. Thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us and sharing all this beautiful music and your family with us. (laughs)
5: Oh, thank you, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.
0: And that's our show for today. I'd love to hear from you. Just say hello and let me know what you think of the show or what we need to be talking about. You can reach out through email. It's askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen at gpb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Chase McGee is senior producer. Special thanks to visiting producer Chelsea Phillips-Tafoya, M.L. Ryan is Vice President of News. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are GPB engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.